Well, uh, good morning. It's nice to be uh, here today on Queen's birthday weekend. And it's always an encouragement to be turning to God's word together, is it not? Now, if you're uh, visiting here, we're going through the Gospel of John. If you would like a Gospel of John, we have some up the front here. I'd really encourage you today to have your Bibles open at uh, John chapter 6. That's uh, where we're going to spend our time this morning. We, as I said, we're going through this uh, series, and last time we were in John, we, we looked at two very significant miracles of Jesus. The feeding of the multitude, or feeding of 5,000 as it's known, and uh, Jesus walking on the water. And today we're going to continue uh, what is happening post those two particular miracles. As part of the overall festival cycle that we're in, in John, which uh, runs from chapter 5 through to the end of chapter 11, where Jesus is, and his disciples are, are constantly either going towards Jerusalem, or in this instance they actually are in Galilee, but they are remembering a festival. And the particular festival they're remembering here is Passover. And this is the, the second time that we have a... Uh, a recollection in, Gospels, in John's Gospel about the Passover. Now, Passover was very significant for this ethnic group, for the Jews. It was something that was celebrated annually. And uh, Passover reminded them about their whole Exodus experience, the whole experience as they came out of the land of Egypt into the Promised Land. It epitomized God's redemption for them. Remember the, the story where they were told to, to grab a lamb and, and slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the lintels and the death angel would pass over that household and protect that household as a sign that, that they were part of uh, God's community. And Passover celebration also signified the, the preservation of God's people as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Redemption came through the provision of a land and preservation was realized through God's consistent supply of manna and water as they wandered through the desert. So any time a Jew would come and celebrate Passover, these are the things that were on their mind. It was remembered that God controlled the water and the provision of food. And it's not insignificant that Jesus feeds 5,000 and walks on the sea. These two things are together. And now we pick the story up in John chapter 6. So turn with me to John chapter 6 and verse 22. We're going to look at uh, this story in, in seven bite-sized bits today. As you can see, John 6 is a long chapter. We're going to have to do bite-sized things. So there's going to be seven little vinaigrettes about what's going on here. <coughs> but the question that always needs to be in the back of your mind is, what are you going to do with the claims of Jesus? This is the thing that's confronting the crowd, this is the thing that confronts the disciples as we work through this story. As Jesus starts revealing to the people that he is the bread of life. 
the question that is always on their, their hearts and minds, as we'll see as, as John narrates the story, is what will you do with the claims of Jesus? So let's pick up the story in John 6.22. <coughs> on the next day, the, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into their boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. This is the scene of the story. We've had the feeding miracle on one side of the lake. We've had Jesus send his disciples into danger. Revealing himself to his disciples and saying, I am God. And the sea was calmed. And now we see the scene in which the dialogue continues or starts between the crowd and Jesus. The crowd gathered, as we saw in these verses, and, and they went to look for Jesus. They couldn't find him, and they realized that he has now gone from one place to the other, but in their minds is, well, how did he get from one place to the other? We only saw one boat. We saw all the disciples get into the boat, and Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. So how did he get from one place to the other? In some way, they realized that they'd gone to Capernaum, which is on the other side of the lake. So they followed him. Let's read verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? A fairly good question. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. So as you see, a dialogue is starting between the crowd is following, they're seeking Jesus, and this dialogue is occurring between the crowd and Jesus. They ask a, a pretty simple question to start with, right? How did you get here, Jesus? We didn't see you get on the boat. How did you get here? It's a fair way around that lakeside. Did you walk around or what happened? Did you walk right through the night? They had no idea how he got there. Did Jesus answer their question? 
Did Jesus answer their question? No. Why did Jesus not answer their question? Because Jesus is looking at their heart. Jesus is more concerned about their heart than just the physical question of how did you get here? He knew they were seeking him in some way or another and he he gets to the point. Jesus knows their heart and he redirects this dialogue. And he not only redirects it, he, he wants to get their attention. Whenever you work through uh, the Gospel of John particularly, you'll see these two words, truly, truly. Or if you're a Greek scholar, amen, amen. It's a double emphatic statement. He wants them to listen. Now listen to me. This is really important. Listen, listen, listen. And this is the, the first of four of these types of statements in this dialogue alone. Jesus wants to make a very clear point to the crowd and then to his disciples. And he uses this technique of, of saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, I really want you to listen about this. He doesn't answer their question about location and how he got there. Because we read from the text, they were concerned about food, physical food. But Jesus wants to highlight their spiritual need. He's a physical example of food to highlight a spiritual need. He turns this question from physical to spiritual. And he looks at them and commands them. Don't be concerned about the physical. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life. Very interesting use of words by Jesus here. He's saying, don't continue to try and acquire these spiritual things by your work, by your toil, by spending your energy on these pursuits. What it's implying here is don't try and obtain eternal life by your moral effort. This is what is implied. I think Jesus here is deliberately provoking this crowd because he knew their heart. And he knew their misunderstanding about how it was to, to, to gain eternal life. They thought they could do the works of God. They thought they could work harder to obtain this particular goal or purpose. We also see here that Jesus makes an amazing statement. He said, you need to be concerned about your spiritual well-being. And by the way, the Father has set his seal on me. He has authenticated me. The seal of approval so that I can offer to you eternal life. I can offer you things that do not spoil, but rather endure 
for eternal life. And then the crowd asks another question. So this pricks their ears up. They're moving from the physical and they start to think about, okay, what's happening here? Why is Jesus instructing us this way, talking about eternal life and doing the works of God? So their next question is, what must we, we do to be working the works of God? Verse 28. Actually, a better rendering of that particular phrase is this. Uh, yeah, is doing, is, is to be working the works of God. You see, they're stuck in the fixation that to attain eternal life is to find the right formula. One plus one equals eternity. They thought by doing the right things that, that this would please God. But Jesus turns it on its head and he says, no, the works of God is this. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. I'm before you. I'm the one who is sent. I am the gift of God to you for eternal life. Eternal life is gained by faith in me. And this is completely contradicting their view. So they spout out, we want to be doing the, the works of God. How the work is to believe in me. It's not your effort. It's not keeping of the, the rules and the regulations. It's to believe in me. And then the crowd respond with a third question. Oh, well, show us a sign then. Show us a sign. Duh. I'm sure part of the 15,000 people that have been fed were here around this crowd. What other sign do they need? Did you not see that there were five barley loaves and two fish and there was 12 baskets of plenty left over? Show us a sign. Really? See, they wanted to see a sign before they believed. For, for them, seeing is believing. And Jesus responds in two ways here. First, he says to them, you're asking for a sign and, and, and you're misquoting Psalm 78, 24. You, you believe that Moses was giving you manna, but actually, no, it was uh, God. It was not Moses that gave you manna in the desert. It's actually God. You're misquoting the scripture. And then he comes in with this a second emphatic statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he restates it. Physical bread isn't the issue here, folks. Spiritual bread's the issue. I'm talking about the bread of life, things that grant you eternal life. And then he, he states it, I am the bread of life. He is the true bread of heaven that gives life to the world. 
He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is what God has given for you. And the crowd responds again. Sir, give us this bread always. Give us this bread always. You think, oh, that's a reasonable sort of response. I think you need to look a little bit further into the text here. Because I think their response is still a misunderstanding of what the true bread of life is. They're wanting a continued supply of bread. Give us this bread always. They're still thinking in terms of manna being provided daily. As opposed to the fact that what Jesus is talking about is eternal. Really interesting, isn't it? Because this particular dialogue here shows a little bit what the people were looking for. And sometimes I think about that and I say, well, sometimes what type of Jesus are we looking for? These folks wanted a miracle worker. They wanted a provider, someone that would meet their needs. In many ways, they wanted someone whom they could almost impress by doing their works. Completely misunderstanding God's gift of grace to them. I think sometimes in our Christian world, we also have our blinkers on of what type of Jesus we're after. Sometimes we're after a Jesus who just takes care of all our needs without realizing the need for repentance of our sin. Sometimes we want a Jesus who will impact us financially there are churches that their main doctrine is around that have your best life now it's a false gospel it doesn't deal with the issue of the heart it's very much like the crowd here who are trying to seek a Jesus that they put into their own box seeking a Jesus who is framed by their thinking and their misconceptions of who Messiah is. So what type of Jesus are you looking for? Let's read further. 6.35 Jesus answers them after they said, well, give us this bread always. And he makes this wonderful statement. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus emphatically states, firstly, that he is the bread of life, and if you come to him, you'll never thirst and you'll never go hungry again. He's moving from the the physical to the spiritual. He's saying, this is what I am offering. (coughs) And then he goes off on a tangent, verses 36 through to 40. He moves away a little bit from the the, the topic of being the living bread and he he squarely and fairly addresses the crowd's unbelief. He squarely and fairly addresses the crowd's unbelief. Their persistent unbelief. You see, the Jews had seen the signs, but they refused to to see who the sign was pointing to. Jesus was making it very clear, the sign is pointing to me. I am the bread of life. He uses the statement, I am, to correlate himself with being God. This is an Exodus statement. You know, when Moses was commissioned by God to go and save the people, what what did Moses ask the burning bush? Who was the representation of God, right? Moses said, well, who shall I say to the people will send me? Moses, uh, God said, tell them it's the I am who is sending you. Jesus takes the same title as God. He's saying he is God. The Jews have seen the signs, but they refuse to believe. They refuse to see that the sign is pointing to the Messiah. And then Jesus gives a a little theology lesson about salvation. He firstly states, I've come down from heaven. Firstly, he states, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What a wonderful promise that is. Two-pronged promise. The Father gives to me, and they come to me, and I will never cast them out. That is security of those who have placed their faith in Christ. That is uh, such a secure position. Jesus himself says, I will never cast you out. Then he talks about, I have come down from heaven. He gives the purpose of why he's come down from heaven. So not that his own will will be done, but the will of him who sent me, the will of the Father. Then he explains what the will of the Father is. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. So those that the Father is giving me, I will not lose. But I will raise them up on the last day. 
This term, I'll raise him up in the last day, is used on four occasions in a very short space of time in this dialogue. This is the first of those occasions. John's the only one who uses this term. There's strong allusions to the fact that when, on the last day, when the world is consummated, that Christ is the one who raises. carries on the will of the Father is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and he repeats it and I will raise him up on the last day it's a wonderful truth, it's deep truth the Father gives a, a specific group of people to the Son The Son comes down from heaven to do the Father's will. The Father's will is for the Son to lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. Sinners come to the Son by looking on Him and believing. The Son gives eternal life. The Son will raise them up on the last day. And our next dialogue in verse 41 it tells us that no one can come to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son draws them. This is salvation from God's perspective. This is security for the believer. Because he is the bread of life. Do you have that security in your own heart? Do you have that security that Christ is going to preserve you and raise you on the last day? Security comes by coming to him and believing that he is who he says he is. He is the only one who has the power to save. Later in John we'll read, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and life. He is the light of the world. He is the only one that deals with the issue of sin. And atones for sin. So that you and I can have life when we put belief in his name. Let's read further. We get down to verse uh, 41. This is a response. So you've seen it so far. We've had this dialogue. Jesus starts explaining who he is. I am the bread of life. They ask several questions. He responds and says, well, I am the true bread. I am the bread of life. And then we have a response. So let's read the response, uh, John six forty one. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that everyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you get the point? How many times does Jesus affirm who he is and what he is doing? But it's interesting, isn't it? We have a response from this crowd. And it sounds a little bit like Groundhog Day. You know what Groundhog Day is? You know, that's that day in your life where you think, I've lived this before. I've lived this this particular day over and over again. Well, this here sounds like Groundhog Day to me. You say, well, why, why say that? Just go back to Exodus chapter 16 with me, just for a sec. Wanderings in the wilderness. Have a listen to this. Exodus 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel praise God for all his wonderful provisions and his, his, uh, his perseverance with them. No one's going to call out you're a heretic. That's not what God's word is telling me here. What does it say? The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the hand of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to fulfill. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The people were hungry, they grumbled. Move over to Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. Hmm, That's an interesting term, isn't it? according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rebidim. But there was no water for the uh, people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What should I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. This is not the first time that we see a grumbling people. They grumbled at Jesus. They were disputing the fact that Jesus had said he'd come down from heaven. They say, hey, 
That can't be so. We know your, your brothers. We know your father. We know your mother. How can you say you come down from heaven? Jesus stops their grumbling by issuing a command, and the command's pretty simple. Do not grumble. Do not grumble among yourselves. So I've told you this before, and I will tell you again. No one will come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he quotes from Isaiah 54, 13, where it's written that, and they will all be taught by God. Isaiah 53 is, uh, 54, verse 13, is in the context, it's a promise given by God to the nation that he will restore them. He'll restore them back into their city. And God himself will teach their children and, and there will be eternal peace and reign. This portion in Isaiah has strong covenant overtones. And, and Jesus, the promised Messiah, was going to fulfill these, these covenant blessings, the Abrahamic, Davidic, and new covenants. And now Jesus is showing that all those who the Father draws to me will be taught by God. They will receive divine illumination. When you believe, you will receive assistance. You will receive the Spirit of God within you. Jesus, in some ways, claiming fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy, not that it's going to be fully fulfilled until the Spirit is outpoured in Pentecost. But he's saying, this now is happening in your midst. And please note, here it is, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. It's not ethnically aligned. It's broadened to all. And that's a beautiful truth. And he summarizes the point again with an emphatic statement. The third of this passage. What does it say? very simple whoever believes has eternal life I am the bread of life and then he starts elaborating how this will happen and I think out of the whole dialogue this is the thing that causes the greatest shock Jesus says hey your fathers they ate the manna in the desert what happened to them? They died. But I'm giving you something that you may eat of and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. First he says, I am the living bread. I am the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It, it rocks back into the prologue. And secondly, he says, with this flesh, this flesh is going to be life 
for the world. I will give for the life of the world. What I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How? By the way of the cross. He's alluding to the fact that as your Messiah, as the living bread, I will atone for sin by way of death. I will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we have a second response. Let's read it. John six fifty two. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live beside of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Groundhog Day, part two. Not only were they grumbling, they now were arguing with one another. That's the seeds of disbelief, is it not? The seeds of disbelief. And this sort of fighting amongst themselves, it's not a, it's not a mild uh, conflict, by the way. It's a pretty strong sort of conflict. But at the end of the day, it's a different day. But it's the same grumbling and conflict. Jesus answers them in this conflict. Because they really are saying, we just don't understand what you're talking about. This, this bread thing and this flesh thing, we, we don't get it. We don't understand it. And Jesus really closes with a final emphatic statement. And he, he, all he is doing is reiterating what he said in 635. What did he say in 635? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All he's now is using metaphoric terms, a deeper metaphorical term, saying, Whoever comes to me will not hunger, i.e., will eat my bread. Whoever believes shall never thirst, i.e., drink my blood. Not in a literal sense, in a metaphorical, in a picture sense. If you are part of me, if you have belief in me, then you understand that you will have eternal life, you'll never hunger, and you'll never thirst. For when you eat and drink of Christ our Savior, in a metaphorical sense, you have eternal life, and you will be raised up in the last day. Please note, he says this for the fourth time. I'll raise you up. And also he says, you'll abide or you'll remain in me. He goes back to the principle of who the Father gives me, none will be lost. 
because you abide and remain in me. Jesus making it incredibly clear that the basis of a believer's union with him is Jesus' union with his Father. That's an incredible promise. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. It's making it clear that your, your union with Christ is based on his union with the Father. And by the way, this, this, this section has, of Scripture that has been taken out of context many times. Just a couple of observations in regards to that. This section is not about the Lord's Supper. Okay? Why is it not about the Lord's Supper? I'll tell you why. The Lord's Supper wasn't instituted until a year later. It's the second Passover. Next Passover event, the upper room, that's where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. That'd be one piece of proof secondly the word flesh here is the Greek word sarx that's never used anywhere else in the New Testament relating to the Lord's Supper the word they use is soma which is translated body two totally different words so on those two bits of proof and other things um, this is not a a sacramental lesson if you like this is not about the Lord's Supper this is about exploding up further what it means to never hunger or never thirst it's about believing that he is the bread of life and that's his purpose we now have two final responses which we will do when many of his disciples heard it they said this is a hard saying this verse 60 who can listen to it but Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this said to them do you take offense at this then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was to betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, Jesus' words always divide. They divide the crowd, and now they're dividing disciples. Jesus' words divide. This is the testimony here. Not only was the skeptical crowd still skeptical and focused purely on the physical, but his broader group of disciples found this particular saying, and we're talking about the saying, we're talking about this whole discourse 
from, chapter, uh, from verse 22 onwards. They found these whole sayings hard to digest. They were offended by Jesus' teaching. What do you think the offense is? I'll offer five views on that. I think there's two broad categories. They, one, they were more interested in food or a political messiah. What happened at the end of the feeding of the 5,000? They wanted to try and take him and make him king. They were more interested about manipulative miracles than the spiritual realities to which the feeding miracle pointed. The feeding miracle always points to Christ. The sign points to who he is. He is the provider of all things, physical and eternal. That's the first point. Second, I think they were unprepared to relinquish their own sovereign authority, even in religious matters. And therefore were incapable of taking any steps of genuine faith. Verse 41 tells us a little bit of that. They were grumbling about him. Why? Because he said he was from bread of heaven, but look here, he, he is earthly. His mum and dad are right here with us in Capernaum. Now, I can't, we can't stomach these things. We know better. We know better. And then I think more particularly, there's three things that was really offending them. Firstly, Jesus advances really claims that he is greater than Moses. We've got this whole Exodus motif going on. He says, I am actually greater than Moses. I'm uniquely sent by God. And I'm authorized to give eternal life. Now, Moses has none of that authority. And he's pitting the story against the Exodus motif all the time. He says, well, this is what's happening. So that's the first part. They're upset that he was claiming to be greater than Moses. Secondly, the fact that he would give his life for the life of the world. The Messiah does not die. That's an offense. And thirdly, his elected, the electing purpose of God. Salvation is not by works, it's by what God does. God makes alive the unregenerate heart. So what's the result? Some disciples renounce their followership of Jesus. They walk away. Jesus was not the Messiah they expected. Jesus was not what they wanted because Jesus would not give them what they wanted. But what he offered, they could not receive. Therefore, these Galileans are very similar to the Jews that were at the temple back in chapter 2. They failed to pass a test of unqualified allegiance towards Jesus. And they failed to persevere on grounds of grace-prompted faith. They failed to persevere and be grounded in grace-prompted faith. After all, it's the Father who draws Jesus now turns to his 12 this is the first time in the gospel we, we actually even told there's 12 he turns to the 12 
And he asked him a question. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. What an answer by Simon Peter. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is an expression of full conviction. Expressing the state of of these disciples, their faith and their knowledge of who he is. These 11 disciples, because Jesus refrains and says, hey, one of you does not believe and know. He will betray. The title granted to Jesus, the Holy One of God, this is equivalent to saying that they saw Jesus as the one greater than a prophet, greater than Moses. He is the divine Son of God who grants eternal life. He is the bread of life. Jesus uses throughout this discourse four emphatic statements to draw the crowd, to draw disciples and his inner twelve to belief in him. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. I've come down from heaven. I'm divine. No one can come to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son draws them. And I will preserve you or preserve you until the resurrection. So where are you placed in here? Are you like the crowd? Just interested? Just skeptical? But when Jesus doesn't come up to the standard you want, you jump ship. Are you like the broader group of disciples who really find Jesus' sayings hard? Or are you like the 11 who do not defect but confess that he is the Son of God, and through Him and Him alone, eternal life is granted. That's the choice for all of us. There is no other choice on this earth. Invite the song team to come up, and we're going to sing a final song of benediction and praise as we let the kids in at the same time.